welcome to the Weekend Booktopian, our podcast about all things book news and the books that we are reading and enjoying. I'm Nick Wasilia, Booktopia's social media specialist, and we are back on the interwaves for the first time in a while, uh, back to our old, old style, old style, quote unquote, of uh, doing things online. But I'm joined today by our affiliate marketing manager, Arthur Malcolm. Hi, Arthur. Hi, Nick. Our non-fiction category manager, Joel Nayoon. Hello, Joel. Hi, Nick. Hi, everyone. And our EA to the CEO and Booktopia's 10-pin bowling champion, Zia. Hello, Zia. How are you? <laughs> that, was, uh, that was a lie. I didn't win bowling, but I'll take it. Hi, everyone. <laughs> um, so as with all episodes, we'll kick off by diving into the world of book news, and then we'll be discussing the books that we have been reading and enjoying over the last couple of weeks. And then be sure to stick around to the end when my guests will go head to head in a battle for book supremacy that has created fear across the publishing industry. It's called Book Fight. <laughs> so diving into book news. First of all, uh, the, the program for the 2021 Emerging Writers Festival, uh, which will be running from the 16th to the 26th of June, has just been announced yesterday. Zia, I'm going to throw to you for this one. What can you tell us about this writing festival? Yeah, so uh, look, uh, the festival's been around for about 18 years and um, after being totally run online in 2020, just like everything else on the planet, uh, uh, the EWF is uh, in 2021, we'll be running a hybrid festival with 50 events and they're sort of splitting them between online and in person and uh, across multiple locations around Melbourne. Uh, Look, the program looks like really robust. They've got you know, in-person events such as like Writing the Stars, which is a special screening and spoken word event at ScienceWorks presented in partnership with Museums Victoria. Um, they have like professional development sessions as well as really good digital, uh, really cool digital offering. Um, um, and best part of the, uh, best part of that is 40 of the festival's events and projects will be free. So that's really good. Um, they are really great. Look, these events are so good. They showcase and support the creativity of our community, right? And emerging writers and a lot of cool stuff. And uh, the art director as well as, I think they've done this for the second year is Ruby Rose Pivot um, Marsh. I think there's the artistic director yeah. around the entire thing. So um, that should be really cool. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting to see uh, how many, I mean, we saw the success of the, the Sydney Writers' Festival taking this, this hybrid approach with some online events and some uh, and physical events. I think this is, it sounds to me, do you reckon this will be kind of the way of the future for all festivals going forward? It seems, it seems like a no-brainer considering how, how well it seemed to work for the Sydney Writers' Festival, do we reckon? I don't know if it did work that well for the Sydney Writers Festival, to be honest. I, I, I like that they can get interesting guests to come along to things, but there are certainly ways in which it is very static. Um, I think that online events should be online. Uh, I don't really like, I like the fact, if you're going to do hybrid, as far as I'm concerned, I think you're better off having it hybrid where you have online events and people who are you know viewing those events are also viewing it online and then you have physical events with physical people you know unless it's someone really high profile and it's like a speech situation where they are speaking to a group and it's like on a big screen and a single person but like I saw a couple of events at the Sydney Writers Festival where you know one of the participants was was essentially zooming in or being questioned or being interviewed by someone in real who was really there and it just it just feels a little bit um, it needs to be more separation, yeah. and it feels it it 
it's different to sit in a, in a room on an uncomfortable chair and listen to people on a screen. It's just not the same. And the RBS was similar, the Australian Book Industry Awards, where you had part of it that was um, online and had been pre-recorded and part of it that was in person. I understand why they had to do it that way. But equally, sitting in the room and actually having this awards night play out in front of you as on screen, whilst the winners are in the room with you, not getting up to do speeches, not, not like they must have known that they already won. It sort of just like sort of makes the event a little bit less dynamic and interesting or something, even though it probably also made it faster. Look, I think, uh, Joel, 100% agree. I think though from a, from a event management perspective or even when you are um, hosting an event, you could probably have a larger reach if it's, hybrid because you could reach people interstate you can reach people internationally you can sort of grow your audience um, by giving that offering I think that would probably be appealing whether the experience is going to be the same absolutely not and I don't think it would work for a lot of sessions which is why you know the in-person stuff you know sometimes they go oh look it's too clunky can't do it but there are some things that actually work digitally if that makes sense I think it could be the way the future to earn more dollars and have more people bumps in seats. I'm okay with like uh, making physical events available to people online. It's yeah, more the hybrid the hybrid within the same event. In the yeah, space. No, I agree. If you're physically there and it's half <laughs> digital, half not, that's what I don't really like. And mm. I, I think I, I hope that um, these types of events don't keep doing that kind of thing because I think I can see why they like it from the perspective of event organizing because once you've got the setup to have someone zoom in then then it's easy to do but uh and people and probably it's easier for participants because they don't have to turn up somewhere physically and do it but it's not a very nice experience to to attend Mm. um watching a zoom from a hard seat in a room full of other people yeah look I I I um in February 2020 is when I was starting a, a course which is related to my role, right? And it was supposed to be like you learn and then you have two-day, you know, every quarter you have two-day sort of in-person, face-to-face in Sydney and in Melbourne or whatever to do training. So that got canned and everything went to Zoom. So I've done an entire course via Zoom and and, and training and, and face-to-face um, um uh, where you, you practice what you learn and all that kind of stuff. And look, while it worked because it was just easy, I could just sit in my house and, and do that and I can actually work around it and I don't have to take full days off. It's not the same. Yeah. It is not the same. The learning experience is different. The connections that, that your networks are different. And it, it's, you'd hope because it is easier to host a virtual event than in person logistically from an event planning perspective. But I really mm. hope that it's not going to be like, the future yeah and that as as the only option especially especially when i teach a course uh, on self-publishing and um with the uh writing new south wales and i've done it for three years now this will be the third year rather that i've done it online so we started doing it online before covid and it's on a proper hosting teaching platform where there are pre-recorded videos for parts of it with screen sharing and stuff and then um, there's a lot of like community interaction via message board system, similar to like online university courses, I guess. And then I usually do a couple of like video calls for people to meet each other and talk throughout the course, but they're not part of the actual course material. 
that works really well because everyone kind of goes into it knowing what they're doing and I it's set up intentionally to be an online course um, but I don't think um, that it's this I don't think it's the same thing to have courses that were in person and you just pivot to doing it on zoom it, and, and like I think that's that's where things can be a little bit face events right face-to-face events are that's the vibe the feel the space the networking the connection seeing jumping being with the people and yeah it's lost when it, when you go that it's lost but we, we did that because we had to but the, when we don't have to anymore you'd hope that mm. it kind of swings back mm, for sure I think, well, look, it, it's because well, well, I'm aware we have to move on to our next news segment, but I think it's an interesting point uh, to end this on. It's, it is curious that in this post-COVID world, we have so many, uh, like th- th- this is kind of becoming a more regular way. And hopefully if taking on the, these points that you both mentioned, it'll be a bit of an ironing out situation where it becomes just physical or just online. Um, but either way, it'll be interesting to see how uh, Emerging Writers Festival take uh, take with their approach to it. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, yeah, for everyone for everyone listening, you can head to their website to check out the guide for this, and it will be running from the sixteenth to the twenty sixth of June, uh, twenty twenty one. So our second and our final uh, news piece uh, for, for this week is uh, there was an article that was actually published, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Guardian book blog section uh, yesterday. Uh, which kind of made a particular comment uh, around uh, kind of the gamifying of reading and how apps like Goodreads um, have effect- sometimes potentially affected readers by turning reading into a competition and by extension potentially affecting our enjoyment of reading. I'll include a, a link to this article uh, in the description box, but it does actually lead as a good jumping off point to a broad discussion um, about this topic. And uh, Joel, I'll throw to you for this particular question. Um, Do we think that apps uh, like Goodreads uh, actually, uh, is it damaging in the way that they kind of gamify reading? I I think there are a few different components to it that are interesting. So the article is actually called Why I'm Deleting Goodreads and You Should Too. So it's very like, it's taking as its premise that this person is going to uh, try and convince you to drop it. Uh, but there are a couple of different components to it that I think is worth considering. Um, the first is that Goodreads has this gamification component where it's tracking your reading and um, there's a competitive element, either competing against, you know, just by yourself against your own record or competing against um, other, other people. And I think, you know, they have reading challenges and other things like that. Um, that seems to me to be not that problematic. I think. I think it's. I think it's fine to have a, a sort of challenge yourself, um, motivation for reading. Uh, I think the part of it that I, that at least for me that became problematic with Goodreads and why I don't tend to use it very much anymore, is is that there's a sort of performative aspect to the reading that you do on Goodreads because a lot of people have their Goodreads accounts hooked up to social media. And I think it's it's present on other social media platforms as well, not just Goodreads, where people use their platform to sort of brag about what they're reading. And that means that you feel guilty about reading stuff you actually like reading. And that over time, if that's your if that's the way that you read exclusively and you feel pressure to read stuff that maybe you don't feel like reading, then maybe you don't end up reading. You know, <laughs> so like my, my... read shaming, like read shaming. 
Well, it's not. It doesn't even come necessarily from other people. But if your tendency is to always post about what you read, and then you come across something that you want to read that you don't want to post about, then you may not read it. And I, my feeling is better to read and not <laughs> not think about how what other people will think about your reading. Just enjoy the read for every book that you read. You know, it doesn't have to be an experience that is. Shared, which I'm sure people would agree, most people would agree with. You don't have to share it, but if you can get into a habit, I think with something like Goodreads, where you're like, oh, I won't put that one on my, you know, it's the same way that people curate their own lives through Instagram, like, oh, that won't go on my grid, you know. But with reading, it's a finite amount of time that you can spend on reading, and so people don't want to waste a read by putting it, um, by reading something that they're not going to put on Goodreads, you know. So that gamification plus performance aspect, I think, can be a bit problematic if you if you get really deeply into it, which, you know, I was for a little while many years ago, but haven't really had the time to read like that anyway. So it, it, well, it dropped away. Well, Joel, that's, that's where I stopped using Goodreads for that. I, single mom of two, I was not reading as much as other people and I'd see how many books they're reading and I, it would take me months to read one. And I'd be like, yeah, I felt a bit like inadequate that I'm not reading enough. Mm. So it didn't make me feel really nice. I still enjoyed what I was reading. Um, and yeah, you're right. There are some books that I wouldn't share that I'm reading that I'm like, yeah, no, nobody needs to know that I'm, you know, reading about, you know, polyamorous bonobos or, or whatever, you know. Um, uh, and I was like, oh, like I can, I am actually connected to two people in the office and, um, one of them is no longer there and they just are prolific readers and which is amazing and what their genre is not my genre and I don't that doesn't really bother me but just the amount of reading they do or so-and-so just finished their book or so-and-so has just written a comment about this and I'm just like oh I'm not reading enough so it made me kind of feel shit mm. so um sorry made me feel poo and um and, and that's why I was like <laughs> that's why I was going oh no I'm not going to do this I deleted the app and also the app is super clunky it's it's clunky yeah. um, and not really like user friendly. I found um, when I was using it, and then now I just sometimes I still because I deleted the app, I didn't change my preferences, so I still get email notifications of what people are reading, and I still mm. haven't changed that. Which then I'm like, oh, that person finished another book. I still see good reads like notifications from other people. I'm still on the on. I still have an account, but I yeah, yeah same, I don't really same. participate I don't have the anymore. App. Yeah, but uh, I I think there are alternatives. I brought this up this morning with my uh, my team who are all huge readers, and a, a couple of them use the Book Riot spreadsheet. There's a Book Riot Google Sheet that they've shared, which um, it's a pre-made. It's like a spreadsheet basically. It's a pre-made spreadsheet that you just fill out with each of your books. You don't have to share it with anyone, but it creates like charts and you know, interactive visuals about your reading habits, basically. It sort of tells you, shows, shows you like, oh, are you reading as much as you did last month, last year, etc. And And over time, it builds up a sort of um, like a picture of your reading habits. Like, are you reading, are you reading books by women, by books by people of colour? Are you reading, you know, like what's, what are your habits? And that can cause you to maybe want to change the way that you read. But it's more about, it's not really about necessarily sharing that with everybody. It's about um, keeping track of it for yourself, which I, I think sort of 
captures much of what I found interesting and useful about Goodreads, to be honest. Um, a lot of people do use Goodreads for recommendations and for community as well, which I think is a different aspect, which I, I don't have a problem with. But I, I think if what you're looking for is just a way to track and evaluate what you read and you don't need to share that with anyone, there's lots of other ways to do that without using Goodreads. Um, hmm. So, yeah, uh, and I, I, haven't, I haven't come across that before, but it, it lo- a few people on the team use that. So uh, it's really cool. I can um, include, a, I can, we can put a link to that, right, Nick? somewhere yeah we can i can uh, i can i can throw that into the into the description as well um yeah. arthur are you a are you a, are you a big goodreads reader or are you uh, someone who stays well clear to be honest I, i'm probably in the stays well clear now i was at one stage and i was just like oh yeah no no too much everyone's reading too many books i'm just like i, I can't keep up just i'm switched off haven't looked back it's been God, easily 18 months, maybe more. It's just one of those things that I was only on it for a very short amount of time. <laughs> I think I, I think I, I think it's um, easier for me to um, worry about my reading um, without having to keep track of it in apps or um, having other people keep track of it and worrying about all that sort of stuff. So, but I mean, it's it's a, I mean, it's fine for what it is if that's your thing, but yeah, just not for me. I should point out that the three of us have children, so yeah, that, 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 <laughs> I bet you there's a negative correlation with people with kids <laughs> who manage to maintain their their Goodreads profiles. <laughs> uh, it's too it's too much work, man. We've got enough work to do. Baby, baby, my reading cool. habit. Uh, I read Winnie the Pooh yesterday. I read The Little Snowman. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a it is a fascinating discussion and we'll uh, we'll link that uh, article into the description box um on this particular topic um because uh sounds to me like uh, there's plenty more to to talk about in terms of if uh, if reading is being gamified um and the effects and connotations that could uh, could go from that but we'll move on to the books that we have been reading and enjoying um over the last couple of weeks and i'm going to throw to you first arthur um, what have you been enjoying over the last couple of weeks? Uh, so I read a few weeks back um, Eddie Jaku's book, um, The Happiest Man on Earth, which oh, that's on my a, list. Such an amazing story. Um, I have I actually happened to finish it the, uh, the night before the RBO Awards, before he won um, oh, nice. the the biography awards. I was obviously over the moon for that. I was really excited for that because. Um, I just finished it, so I knew what a great book it was. So it was really good to see that he took the award for that. Um, very well deserved. Uh, for those that don't know what it's about, um, Eddie Jaku is um, a Holocaust survivor, to put it plainly. Like he's the, the he, um, you know, he grew up in Germany, um, Jewish, uh, Jewish born in Germany. Um, you know, his family that that was their that was their heritage funnily enough like you know they always considered themselves Germans. He says that um you know quite a lot throughout the book, especially at the start of it, that you know, we we, we thought of ourselves first and foremost as Germans, um, as opposed to, you know, Jewish. Most people it's you know, when you think about it, most people think about their country as part of their heritage more than their religion. Um and and yeah, and just obviously we, we all know what happened um during the Holocaust, even though there are some who try to deny it. <laughs> um, but part which is funnily enough, as Eddie mentions in his book, one of the reasons why he felt the need to tell his story afterwards is uh, he's 101 now. And this book um, 
came out last year when he was 100. So it was really important for him to tell this story because he, there are so many people he encounters in, that still to this day will deny the existence of the Holocaust. I mean, if you read this book and um, some of the stuff he details about what he went through is just horrifying, horrifying. Mm-hmm. It's one of the most horrifying things that any people, any group of people had to live through, quite frankly. I mean, there's a lot of suffering in this world, but I mean, what, what went through during that time and what he details, um, I mean, I don't want to spoil any parts of the book for anyone, but uh, there's some stuff in there that's especially just the way, um, the callous way he was told about um, what happened to people he knew. It was just, it's very heartbreaking. Uh, it's, and it's just a credit to him that, uh, that you know, he sees his life as a positive because he, he basically had a death sentence and he, he managed to survive. So he looks at every day as a blessing. It's a reason to be happy. It's a reason to, you know, I basically the way he said it is, I, I shouldn't really be here right now. So I'm going to treat each day like it's a gift. And, and you know, he's such an inspiration had such an inspirational life and he really is so inspirational isn't he it's such a beautiful book and he just his attitude to life i just can't imagine being able to be that positive and grateful um after what he's been through it's it's so so amazing it is it's really and just puts things into perspective i mean things um that you know some of the things we hold on to in life that um as negative and uh it's just you know, it's when you put things into perspective like that, and the way he, you know, his whole outlook is, you know, you know, I, I can, I can be happy if I can. Uh, he even says in the book he doesn't hate Hitler, um, which is one of the things I'm like, I hate, I hate him. After he, I hate him even more than I did before. It's, it's a, I can't believe, you know, like he's just he's going, he says no, he doesn't have time for hate. And it's just such a beautiful thing to to hear because it's you know it's you don't hear that a lot, and especially. Um, in this day and age, so there's not a lot of uh, a time for forgiveness when things, um, horrible things happen. So it's just a remarkable, really remarkable person, and what a story he had. Um, that's funny you should say that about not having space for hate, um, which is a kind of really part of the one of the books I'm reading, which is very similar, kind of. Um, and it's about the you can only grow and actually be free of that once you let it go and it's not torturing you anymore. Does that make sense? And I think Mm. a lot of, um, you know, um, Holocaust survivors and a lot of also people who have suffered trauma in their life, abuse, um, persecution, um, uh, you know, there's a common theme there of the the story, the journey that they take through the emotions and then to actual freedom freedom from it you know actually you know you 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 take it on board uh, carrying that negative emotion really you are the only one suffering after that after that that event is over right you are no longer being you're no longer in a concentration camp you're no longer being persecuted you 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 free carrying that causes you more grief than anyone you're the one being tortured and and having that mindset is what sets you free to to really just having a a a, a peaceful life if that makes sense when you, you just put it to rest and I don't think you can truly be free of something and overcome it and enjoy life and um, let till you do that you you got to let it go and and you do hear that it's a very common people who truly have overcome you know like it, similar to um 
the author of this book, and, yeah, yeah. And, and, and other authors as well of people who do biographies. It's this. It's very similar. They, they, you, you carry that hate, you carry that suffering, and yeah. only when you you become at peace with it and you let it go. And there's a process, of course. If you can't just go, oh yeah, it's over, I'm done. Like you can't, yeah. you can't just respect it that way. But only then can you sort of find peace or move on. And it, there's a common underlying undertone of like hate really just doesn't. Yeah, I think forgiveness gets framed as a gift that you give to other people when sometimes it can be a gift you give yourself. Absolutely. I think that's one of the things about that book that I think is really interesting. So what are you reading, Zia? A Paragon. So that was, um, yeah, by Colin McCann. So it was, um, I think it was long listed for the the Booker Prize in in 2020. Um, And... Uh, it was on my list. I bought a lot of the books um, in that in that list, and it is about a story about a Palestinian father and an Israeli father, both living in in in, in Israel, and um, both of them lost a daughter due to um, you know a, a violent event. One of them was a suicide bombing, and the other one was um, a, a bullet from a from a soldier to the back of the head. And both of them were were teenagers; they were doing nothing wrong. Um, and it, it, it really, uh, look, um, I, I am from the region and I, I did live there for, for a part of my life when I was young, very impressionable. And, and you only see one, one side and having, um, really having in, a, a perspective, right? The, uh, having perspective into the emotions and what these two fathers, being a mum now as well, of what they went through and their journey to healing it and then forgiveness. So they become really good friends, right? So after their daughters die, both from, you know, the whole situation from the other side, right, which is the story how they mostly go, they become really, really close friends and they talk about their feelings and their journey to overcoming it and what they feel is the root cause, you know, between fear and hate is the root cause of the issue, you know, and, um, and it is truly, truly, it is lovely. It is heartwarming, and it really takes you into the to the raw emotions of the human existence and and suffering and people and persecution and how you only become free after you forgive. Really, and I'm, I'm halfway through, and this is now where the two fathers talk about the different lives they've led, the event, you know, the the, the cataclysmic event that has happened, and where they took it, and that's a choice they made, right? So they make a choice to either go the other way, which is, you know, exactly the way the region has been operating for, you know, uh, God knows forever, or the other way, which is learning, forgiveness, understanding your, your, your other human, right, and knowing that we all share the same thing. We're all very, very the same. So I'm finding it really enlightening now as an adult as well and and. It's, it's kind of close to my heart. So I'm really enjoying it. They have, it's really weird as well because they talk about, um, they talk, there's a lot of references in the book to migra- migration patterns of birds in the Middle East. So I didn't know this, but the, like from the south to the north, that part of the world has one of the biggest migration of birds up and down. And look, I don't know that very well, but it was really cool fact in the book. And it all, they always refer to certain habits of native birds and how, and he relates the story to it, which is super cool. Um, yeah, no, that's that's something. So it's actually, I recommend it, to be honest. It's it's 
it's a lovely book and it teaches you a lot of, about things we don't know about the region, things I never knew either. So a little bit of, we hear so much about it always. It's always there and, and just little cool facts and, you know, the geography and um, uh, the climate, um, the native animals, some of the stuff that does around conservation around this whole issue of, you know, violence in the Middle East. So anyway, that's what I'm reading. Have you guys read it? No, no, I haven't. No, I haven't read it. No, sounds good. Sounds really good. I, I think Olivia. I think Olivia. She's the one who sold me on it. She, she, um, she had it on her list when we did uh, this podcast, and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to grab that. And I've just, yeah, it's it's a really good look. I recommend it. Yeah, that is that is one of the side effects of hosting this podcast. You're, you're to be read. <laughs> you buy a lot of books. You, you're to be read. Paul kind <laughs> of gets a little bit messed up. Side effects of working at Booktopia, I suspect. Uh, yes, indeed. <laughs> it's interesting that both you and Arthur are, are gravitating towards similar uh, similar topics of discussion and similar yeah. wine sets and stuff. Um, thank you, Zia, and also thank you, Arthur, for your recommendations. But I'll jump over to Joel now um, in terms of... Cool. What have you been reading, enjoying? Uh, I only have I only have the one the one at the at the moment. I've been in a bit of a slump. Um, uh, We've been busy. It's understandable. <laughs> very busy with work, um, and not with the work that means that I read books, but poor work. <laughs> but I would have read this book anyway because I absolutely adored her last book. Uh, Bree Lee's got a new book out um, called "Who Gets to Be Smart." Uh, it comes out. It doesn't come out till June but that's only in a couple of weeks. Uh, so you can order it now. Um, and she, uh, she's coming into the office next week to have a signing. So I'm reading her book ahead of that. I'm hopefully going to have a chance to chat to her in the podcast. But it's such an interesting book. So her first book was uh, Eggshell Skull. It was a very, very personal book about... Um, sort of the way the legal system treats sexual assault in Australia. So it was very, very intense, dark, and, and extremely personal. Uh, it starts off as not personal and then it becomes more personal. It's, very, it's a very interesting book. Um, this is similar in a certain way, but not as dark, I guess. It's, it's about how universities and educational institutions in general and how the culture decides who is smart and who isn't. And I think it's really relevant to everybody, basically, because we all have opinions about who is and isn't smart. And a lot of us have those opinions about ourselves. You know, a lot of people do themselves down. They say they're not really smart, but actually they are. And uh, this book sort of dissects where that comes from, the sort of concept of how we get to that point where we consider someone to be smart. And a lot of it is about, you know, the tremendous amount of money that gets pumped into these elite educational institutions, these huge big universities and other types of places like that, and how they, they are just pipelines into privilege for the rest of your life, basically. Um, and all of that concentration of wealth and power, it comes from a particular place and goes into those places for a particular reason. And it's to keep people out, basically. Um, and I think it's just a really, really smart, insightful and still personal journey through that experience of understanding like how you have these opinions deep inside you. And it feels like by challenging them that you're somehow trying to like, it feels a bit presumptuous if you've got a, an opinion about smart people to 
if you challenge the the basis for why people are smart, it's like you're saying, oh, but you're just trying to make out like you're smart, you know, like it's somehow, but actually it's <laughs> that the, all of these institutions and the, and the way that our culture sees intelligence is, and, and is, is extremely um, prejudiced, you know, basically across multiple lines. So the book goes to, you know, talks about class and money, but also race and gender. And it's just like a very, um, interesting read about all of that stuff. So uh, it's you know anyone could read this book, but particularly if you um, if you like sort of society and culture books about this type of topic, it's. But I, I honestly, she's such a good writer that you could read it. Anyone could read it, and it's it's not like sort of a whinging complaint. It's like it's like a really energizing experience reading this book because you like. It just changes your mind, you know, where it allow it gives you a permission to think differently about mm. the way that we talk about intelligence, basically, the way we talk about who's smart. Um, so yeah, it's great. It's a great read. Does it also touch touch on the, what we consider as you know a, a subject that would, if you knew about it, if you were that subject an expert in that subject that you would be considered someone who is smart. Like for example, if you're, you know, a neuro, you know, the brain and neuroscience or whatever compared to crystal healing, you know what I mean? Like, Oh, you're not really clever if you know a lot about that, but you're a brain guy. That, that's, that's, that's smart. Yeah. So certain topics that are considered, you know, elite topics. It's, um, it, it goes into privilege and how, how certain things, certain areas, and certain people get sort of lifted up and pushed into. So it's not just, it's more, it's so much more complicated than just a particular subject area. It's also like how you end up being the one who becomes a lawyer or a, or a doctor or a, um, go, and going to Oxford or going to, you know, Sydney Uni or something in Australia. It's, it's not an accident that that happened to you. You know, it, there are tracks that you end up on and it's got nothing to do necessarily with your inherent intelligence mm. um, or skill, but there's a, there's a lot that goes into, um, you know, pushing people through a pathway uh, to make sure that the people who already have privilege retain that privilege through education. And it's, it's just a really interesting, really interesting um, book. Yeah. It's like short highlights more the pol political nature of it. Of, of that universe. Yeah, there's just so many angles you can approach it. Like Eggshell Skull had a lot of political angles to it and ha has in fact been part of the process of Queensland changing a law about sexual assault, which is fantastic. It was a huge, huge win, especially for Brie herself. Um, but I can see that this book could potentially have an impact on politics as well. But it's not, it's not just a, it's not a political book per se. It's sort of about ideas and how mm. we think of things um and it's the kind of book that you read and go oh, i never thought about that before but it's so true um uh, i suspect a lot of us um already know a lot of this stuff right but it's about how it's put together and how easy it is to read and how she pulls you into the story which is mm. hard to explain without reading it but um you know, I don't want you to come away from this thinking that it's some boring book about education, but it's, it's like a really interesting, um, beautifully written book 
which then makes you think a lot about all of this stuff in a way that you haven't thought about it before. So it's just really interesting. So go buy the book at Booktopia. For sure. <laughs> and we'll, yeah, uh... so we'll, we'll have signed copies too for a little while at least. Yes. So uh-huh. um, if you liked Eggshell Skull, you're going to love this book, I reckon. Indeed. A lot of people read Eggshell Skull. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and also keep an eye out for that uh, for that eventual podcast we'll do, uh, which will be recorded next week. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you, Joel. Um, thank you for that awesome, awesome recommendation. And thank you to everyone um, as well for your for the great books you've been reading. Um, but let's change tack now with our final what section. You? What are you reading? What am I reading? <laughs> I have recently uh, been getting into a book that I picked up from um, Abby's Bookshop uh, when I was there a few weeks back, which is called How to Borrow a Dog by T.M. Kirshner, which is a story of a, of a heist kind of book. Uh, bloke who he's a he calls himself a professional borrower and he is kind of a he's just basically described the book because i have it right here next to me um despised by some idolized by others uh tennessee evermore has a penchant for borrowing enjoying and then returning expensive exclusive items of pleasure in society um which has been very well documented then one day he decides to <clears throat> to borrow something very big and very famous and then becomes an international phenomenon. It's a really fun. It's a really fun book, um, and I'm enjoying it quite a lot. Um, that's the one I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm enjoying at the moment. Um, but we'll uh, continue on to our final section of the show, uh, which is a time time for the competition of literary prowess, the ultimate ego trip, the heights of actual genuine career success that only that few have summited. It is time <laughs> for book fight. <laughs> so we'll dive straight in uh, to your buzzers for this week, and I'm going to throw you first, Arthur. Arthur, what shall your buzzer be? Mine will be Eddie. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I love it. Um, throw to you, Zia. Oh. Oh, oh yeah, that's right. I always, I always forgot you. <laughs> so confusing, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that just sounds like you just thought of something. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's every time I get, I go, oh, oh, oh. So I, it's it's, it's I genius. It is, I reckon. It is genius, and it, and, and it, but every time the only thing is, is like, cause you go, oh, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm like, oh, yes, here, no, I don't know. It. Oh, I, just, oh, see, I just did it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then lastly, Joel, what shall yours be? Uh, in that spirit, I'm gonna go with ooh. <laughs> this is gonna be a this. I'm sensing a discrepancy right here. This is gonna, gonna be, be like a a, a, a monkey. A monkey like <laughs> it's going to be contentious as to as to if the O or the O gets there first, or what will qualify. Well, it will always be the O. I I am no I am not addition to Joel and his genius. I suck at this game. Uh, please don't put me on it. Don't do that to me because then when I really suck, it's going to be really. Embarrassing. You know, I do this to. Everyone. I did it with bowling. Yeah, yeah, true. You psyched me out. <laughs> Pressure is on. Well, let's time to put all of that aside. Let's play book fight. Question one. What year was the first Pulitzer Prize awarded? Mm. And no Googling, because I know that you can do it <laughs> with an online version. <laughs> no Googling. Oh. Up, yeah? Uh, 1912. 
Oh my God, you're actually very close. Um, but no, it is not 1912. You are in the right decade though. Would, everyone else, would anyone else oh. like to have a stab? 19... Yep. 17. Oh my God, you got it. <laughs> really? Well done, yeah, you did. <laughs> 1917 is in fact the correct answer for the first Pulitzer Prize being awarded. This is the World War. Yeah. No, I was surprised by that one too. It's, uh, yeah, 1917 was the year the first Pulitzer Prize was awarded. One point to Joel. Well done. Uh, I, I, I led you there. I led you there, Joel. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to claim the half point. You're going to start demanding half points for, yeah, for assisting. Because it will be the only half point I get today. I would definitely have not got the right decade if not for that. <laughs> Question two. If I was reading the classic book that chronicles the history of the French invasion of Russia through the stories of five aristocratic families, I would be reading blank. War and Peace. You would be re reading War and Peace. <laughs> Yay! Yay! Come on! <laughs> <laughs> I'm still War trying to finish that book. I started it when I was 17. I'm, so I'm, I'm so proud of you. It's a monster. Oh. I have tried to I have tried to read that book too and I couldn't couldn't finish it. Uh, and, and I people. end up liking parts of it. Like at some decades of part of my life, I love the aristocratic because you know how we chop like from one to the other. Mm. And sometimes when I was doing my poli sci degree, I was and learning about like certain you know politics and all that kind of stuff. The the the, the war and the political stuff and all the yeah. invasions really kind of spoke to me, but I just couldn't make it to the finish line. Just, yeah, yeah. It's a <laughs> I, I love, I love. Okay, for, for context for everyone, stand for everyone listening. Zia is like standing up. She's moving around. She's fist pumping. I'm loving your enthusiasm. It's great. <laughs> um, I actually seriously am tempted to do uh, an episode. We've discovered the three super competitive people, which is Hannah, Olivia, and Zia. We should put you all in a podcast together and see what, and see what happens. Um, question three. For three points, name this writer. An additional two points are on offer if you can name them before I unveil the title of their first work. I was born in St. Louis, Missouri, to a prominent Boston Brahmin family and moved to England in 1914 at the age of 25, where I went on, went, went on to settle, work and marry. I had an infa infatuation with literature from a very young age due to many physical disabilities while growing up, which affected my ability to socialize. However, once moving to England, I became renowned for my poetry, publishing my very first poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufock. Ah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, yes. T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot is correct. Very well done. Three points for you. Except you did name the first work. The first work is... You, know, you would have gotten five points if you named it before that. Oh, before. Okay. Yes, you have to... I, I, points, you, points. you got it once I named it, so yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. No, very I, thought I, I thought I should lose points, but I think I was having more points. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he's uh, known for a lot of stuff, The Hollow Man, The Wasteland. He also is for the, known for those final lines, this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper. And one other thing that I found fascinating was he won the... Nobel Prize for Literature in 1948, and also 
was behind a whole bunch of other um, poems and plays, including Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats, which later became the basis for the musical Cats, yeah. which I think is really fascinating. Oh, that's good yeah. uh, trivia knowledge, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. which I think is very interesting. The Wasteland is, is probably my favourite poem. It's probably a little bit uh, basic to say that, but I don't care. I love it. It's such it's a, a good poem. poem. Yeah, it's a very good poem. Question four. Name this book. Published in 2021, it tells the story of an infamous flood in Gundagai in 1852 and how two Indigenous men saved the lives of the people in the town. It marks one of the first times Indigenous language has been used in a book title. Oh! <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> did you do I, was, I knew that was the one that I can't pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> Billa. Hmm? Billa. Yes. Yaren Dangalangare. Is that I'll it? Give, you, you are absolutely correct. Um, and the pronunciation I mean, I can't was promise that I pronounce it correctly, but I think that's how it, roughly it, what it is. Yes, I think the closest I've got is... Anita Heiss. Yes, Anita Heiss. That is correct. It, yeah, Billa Yaragangalangare, which is... Uh, it's it's a difficult it is it is a difficult name to pronounce, but uh, it's uh, from it's Radri language, which means river of dreams. Um, but yeah, one of the I, first. I, I love it. I love the fact that this book exists. I love that it's got this title. Yes, uh, it looks great. The book looks great. I want to read it, but also uh, it is hard to pronounce. <laughs> yeah, well, look, you need to. We, I think it's important to for a more indigenous language to be uh, out in Australian fiction and. But with books like this, it's really gives an incentive. Really, what makes you want to learn more about your local your local indigenous language? Um, mm -hmm. For sure. Um, question five: We are so currently we are um, looking at the point scores midway through uh, book five. Joel is sitting on five points. Zia on one. Arthur yet to score. Don't worry, plenty of time left. <laughs> question five: How to do the work is currently sitting on top of the Booktopia charts. What is the author, Nicole Lapira, also known as? <laughs> I feel like this is a cheat. It's my category. <laughs> Anyone but got it? A... Also known as? Yes. <laughs> we have a, okay, we have an ooh. Uh, the host, holistic psychologist? The holistic psychologist is correct. Yeah. <laughs> Zia, don't look like that. Sorry, guys. <laughs> this, this, is looks... not a fair, this is not a fair question. This book has been <laughs> this book has been in the top charts for my category for the last like three months. I lived and <laughs> breathed this I, book. That's why uh, I suggested, Joel, that I like I personally I don't work in the in the with the book team and I don't not really that close with the books as I'd love to be. I am at a disadvantage here, so there has to be some sort of like yeah. general knowledge questions when I'm around. Yeah, well, you got War and Peace for funny, that reason. Funny you <laughs> mention that. The next question hopefully gives you the chance to make some to earn some points back. Let's take that back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Question six: For one point each, name as many books as you can in Lee Bardugo's recent series that has been adapted for Netflix. Netflix. Eddie. More points. Any books. More points are on offer if you can also name other books outside of the of the original series. I didn't even understand the question. By who? Lee Bardugo. Lee Bardugo. Eddie. Eddie. Yes. Okay. So Shadow and Bone. Yep. Shadow and Bone is the main one, which is the name of the series. Uh, 
I think there's one called Ruin and Rising. Yes, there is. Ruin and Rising. That's another one. Um, and then there's another one with Storm in it. I forget what the start of it is. Yes. Uh, you're, uh, oh, you're close. Yes. Uh, I've lost it. No, I've lost the best. You're, oh. <laughs> I knew. I noticed something about a storm. Yeah, it's uh, do I get give half it to him? Because you're, you're halfway. Half half like... I'll take half a point if I can have half. Siege and Storm. Siege and Storm <laughs> is the correct answer, Siege but I'll give, point. yeah. But you, Joel, you wouldn't have got it without Arthur, so you're both getting a point. <laughs> <laughs> I can name I can name some of the books from the other series. Yeah. <laughs> well, Six of Crows. Six of Crows, yes, that's one. Uh, what's the other one? It's the King one. There's a King one, something about a king. Yes, there um, is a king one. My team is going to be very upset with me for not knowing this. <laughs> <laughs> I was even in the Shadow and Bone uh, <laughs> podcast. Podcast, but you know, we can't. We can't all be. <laughs> uh, one oh, or the other. Rule of Wolves. Rule, Rule of Wolves. That's the one. I, that's one that one came out earlier this year. Yes, very good. King of Scars. King of yes, Scars. Yes, King of Scars. That's one too. <clears throat> And Zia, you got it. <laughs> Zia's just shrugging. I have no idea what you guys are talking about. <laughs> There's a Crooked Kingdom. Crooked Kingdom. Yes, that one that's one too. Yes. Um, and that's all I got. I'm tapped out. Yep. I think that's the. I would have also accepted Arthur. Have you got any more you want to you want to try and contend for? Uh, no. I, I think I've tapped out as well. That's the best I know. Well, that's a very, very admirable effort on all parts. I would have also accepted The Language of Thorns and The Lives of Saints as well um, as other books uh, in the series too. Great. Huh? Yeah, this, Dia, this is an awesome show. You should watch it. You should watch so it. Based, based it on it. It's a, it's a YA fantasy book series, Lee uh, Bardugo, and it's got a Netflix series called Shadow and Bone, which is the name of the first book, um, mm-hmm. which is... The first season is all available on Netflix now. It's really fun, really fun. Okay, thank you. I'm, I'm go, go and watch it. You'll love it, I reckon. I agree. I love this. <laughs> Question. Control S. Gotcha. Thanks, <laughs> Question seven. And to make it more interesting, this is going to be worth two points. Who was the winner of the 2021 Stella Prize? Come on, Zia, you know this one. I know it was on the last podcast, but I forgot. <laughs> Zia, you know this one. This one's for this one's for you. you can... Was it? Wasn't it the book that? Oh, wasn't it the? the yeah, you did get you did say, Arthur. Oh. Arthur's reading it now, isn't it? No, 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 no. It's not the happiest man on earth. It's not... <clears throat> okay, no, then I don't remember. Has to be by a woman. Yes, Stella Prize is a uh, yeah. Oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> oh, that's right. Oh my god. Yep, you said O again. Go again if you want. <laughs> no, that is O of defeat. I have not. Uh, again, I've, Eddie, I've got half an answer. I um, I remember that the author's name was Evie. Yes, yes. yes. I want to say why. Yeah, yes, you are correct. I'll give that and to the, you. It uh, is. I couldn't name the book. I'm so sorry. That's Bass all right. Rock. Yes, it's the Bass Rock is the answer. Um, ah, the once Bass. again, yeah, I'll give I'll, I'll give that, that one fully to Arthur because uh, he, would, he, would, he pretty much <laughs> he pretty much lit the path for you again, Joel. <laughs> I love this is this is your habit. This is your habit. This uh, I just this I just coming here. <laughs> I'm gonna have to start you know reading when these press announcements come out. <laughs> I need to start reading. The seagulls in Finding Nemo. Yeah, exactly. Working. 
That's Look exactly me. <laughs> At least I didn't get the point in this occasion. The chip went to Arthur instead of to me. The chip went to Arthur because we were fighting over. Stand uh, behind him. You, you'll get it. He did the hard work. All right, we are on to our final question of book fight. Currently, Joel is on ten points. Arthur is on five, and Zia okay. is still on one. I'm sorry, Zia. It's one and a half, but I, I'm, I'm okay. Not gonna, I'll give I'm you one and a half. Fine. <laughs> fine. <laughs> Bend my arm. <laughs> Question, well, this is the last question. According to Bill Cruz, how many rules are there for living a better life? Eddie. Yep. 12. 12 is the correct answer. So what is the magic number? I was going to say, it's either 10 or 20. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah, indeed taken from uh, his new book from Reverend Bill Cruz, 12 Rules for Living a Better Life. Um, and that brings us to the end of Book Fight for this week. Let's have a look at the scores. And oh my goodness gracious me. Arthur, well done. Finishing on six points. Zia, one and a half points. Uh, great effort there. But Joel, you take the win with 10 points. <laughs> oh, excellent. excellent. Engaging in fantastic seagull <laughs> behavior to grab the win. <laughs> well done. We're not bitter at all. <laughs> This was my best performance ever. I'm really pleased. Yeah, this is no, my no, best no, performance see, you're too. You're so positive. I love it. I'm a bitter, bitter loser. I think Zia beat me last time. I think Zia beat me last time. I think I almost broke the mic. I got so excited. <laughs> Touch and go for a sec. Yeah. But well, well, good work. <laughs> well you have yes well fortunately next time you'll have the chance to redeem yourselves here because we will always have you on um congratulations joel and thank you everyone for for coming out and enjoying this episode of the weekend booktopian um thanks, and, Nick. thanks guys yeah thanks, guys and thanks, uh, be, thanks everyone and be sure to check out all of the books that we have mentioned today down in the description box the Weekend Booktopian was produced by myself, Nick Wasiliev, and you can check out hundreds of episodes on our Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud channels, including our recent interview with Reverend Bill Cruz on his book, 12 Years for Really Being a Better Life. Um, also be sure to check out Booktopia TV on YouTube, or if you can't get enough of chained authors, head to the Booktopian blog curated by Olivia Frico, where you can read articles that are published every single day, including our recent Q&A with Catherine Hyman, author of also you can have the chance to go and play book binge bingo which is running all of this month thank you so much for listening and never stop reading thank you for listening to the booktopia podcast channel don't forget you can subscribe to us on soundcloud and itunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces, and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.